Hello, and welcome to the Babiaga Project. The Babiaga Project is a podcast and blog that focuses on the ritualized year, folklore, and history. Lovely researched and recorded by your host, Margo and Sonia. Hi, I'm Margo. I have a master's degree in American history with a focus on indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. Alright, so the focus of this week's episode is boys, boyhood. What does that lived experience look like? What do people think about it? How are the anxieties and ideas around this stage of life changing over time? Last week we covered girls and girlhood, and this week we are covering boys and boyhood. We're doing it in this way because for most of the history that we are talking about, which is in the, you know, Euro-Western situation, society was heavily gendered, as we've spoken about before, and there was not a lot of um, acknowledgement of any variation. So you are either a girl or a boy, although we will talk later in the season about certain instances where, you know, these lines would get a little bit blurry, especially around people who are intersex or who otherwise were not able to be, like, put into this specific box. Mm -hmm. But for today, we're going to focus on the kind of general standard that someone who is assigned male at birth would go through. (laughs) So, basically, we are going to be talking about boys from about the age of, you know, five, six ish up till about age 13 or 14 when in a lot of especially in pre-modern societies you would have some coming of age rituals we'll talk which we will talk about in later episodes so this is the time in your life where you're not a toddler you're not an adolescent or an adult you are you are still a child and you are seen as a male child so now we've defined our terms let's take it away get in our time machine and we're going all the way back to ancient greece a horrible place to be really so as we talked about last week until about the age of seven all children both boys and girls lived in the women's quarters Mm -hmm. of the house in ancient greece there was no real separation they would play the same games do the same sort of things however once the children were aged seven, then you get separated out and you would no longer really play together. Uh, Boys were encouraged to play, you know, strength training games. So things like tug of war, uh, playing, you know, different sports that (laughs) have been lost to time now. But, you know, there are images of boys playing sports with different balls with you know, getting up on each other's shoulders, maybe playing with wooden swords or that kind of thing. So it's all about training you to become, you know, basically a man who is going to go off and fight at some point. Additionally, boys in ancient Greece likely went to school, provided once again that your parents had the uh, means to do that. And there was much more of an emphasis placed on 
boys going to school as compared to girls because boys had to develop the correct qualities to become citizens and become part of the state government of, you know, the Greek city-states and just in general, the um, Greek society. However, similarly to girls, as we talked about in the last episode, if you were um, enslaved in ancient Greece, then yeah, from about the age of seven, you'd probably be expected to do whatever work you were able to do. Uh, Same if your family was poor and you were living, you know, maybe on a farm, you would be helping out more so around the farm rather than receiving a education. In, In some cases, in other cases, if your family could kind of manage it, they would send you to school at least for some time. And, of course, again, the exact type of education you could expect to receive would really vary from would vary at least to some extent from place to place. So for Spartans, as we've talked about before, militarism was, you know, very emphasized, very important. That's why, as we talked about, even girls would receive military training. But for boys, this was even, you know, even more so. Like this was kind of going to be the focus of your education was being a good warrior, being able to fight, basically. Whereas Athenians tended to emphasize more so the intellectual pursuits. That's not to say that they didn't care about athletic pursuits, but, you know, there was somewhat more of a emphasis on that versus militarism. For the most part, boys would not be continuing their education after the age of about 15, 14, 15, and that would be kind of the end of your boyhood. Some would enter the gymnasium at age of 16 for two years. And after that point, they would become adults. So again, it really um, depended on your family's income, your ability to continue going to school, basically, and continue being educated as opposed to, you know, entering A gym is a school? Yes, yes. The gymnasium is the... um, Yeah. So basically, uh, to clarify, uh, when I'm talking about the gymnasium in ancient Greece, I'm not (laughs) talking about what we would think of today as like gym class. Um, And actually, the gymnasium in ancient Greece was a training facility to compete both in public games, you know, think the Olympics and similar games. And it's also a place for socializing with other men and also engaging in intellectual pursuits and in education and the word comes from gymnos means naked so gymnasium is the place where you're naked and the reason this was um emphasized was because only people who were seen as adult male citizens were allowed to use the gymnasium so no women no non-citizens, no slaves. So you could start going to the gymnasium at around the age of 15 or 16 if, you know, you had the ability to, like, afford to go there and your family had the status to send you there. And you had to be naked. Um, And the reason everyone is naked is because... Yes. Yes, um, because athletes competed in the nude. And uh, it is, you know possibly partly just because of like it's real hot in Greece so you know you don't want extra clothes when you're 
running track and field. Um, but it's also that the Greeks had a real... Um, Gay vibe? A real <laughs> obsession. Yes, yes. I, a, a lot of, a lot of gay vibes. Also, um, they were absolutely obsessed with the male body. They saw it as the male body was the pinnacle of human beauty. Yeah, that sounds like a gay perfection. vibe to me. So, <laughs> yes, <laughs> competing in the nude was seen as, you know, both a tribute to the gods and also was seen as a way to encourage men to pursue their highest, um, you know, physical abilities and physical forms and be muscly. <laughs> and uh, now is the fun part where we, uh, trigger warning, talk about pedophilia, a.k.a. pederasty, which is slightly different, I guess. Um, <laughs> this is an, a socially acknowledged romantic relationship in ancient Greece. That would go between an adult man and a younger male, uh, usually someone in their teens. Basically, there was the idea that, I mean, this is a free relationship between citizens. So this was kind of a semi-coming-of-age um, situation where you know boys sometimes as young as 13 or 14 would be in these sexual relationships with like women. how old were the men um, was this like very much like a 60 year old man or is it more like call me by your name like your dad's grad student um it, it um well it Oh, it could okay. Be either, okay. Basically, uh, it you could have a call me by your name situation, um, but you could also have like an old man sleeping with Ooh, a thirteen-year-old okay. boy. Um, yes, it is. Uh, not. Yeah, I mean, I I want to be clear that in obviously in modern day society, this is totally unacceptable and yeah. uh, criminally mm -hmm. illegal do not do this. Um, but that is, you know, the reality that we have to discuss. I mean, in much the same way that as we talked about last week, you would have girls who yeah. are married off at the age of 12 to 30 year old men. I mean, the concepts that we have around consent and around mm -hmm. adulthood and who counts as an adult and who can give meaningful consent, not really a yeah. topic of conversation at this point in history. Um, so yeah, while the, the idea was that basically there was a very hierarchical mm -hmm. idea of sexuality and of sex. So in these cases, the, um, basically like the older man would be the like top and the younger person mm -hmm. would be the bottom because that's, it was seen as the it was fine for the younger person to take the quote unquote like woman's role in a sexual encounter and then they would grow up and then take on the you know quote unquote male mm -hmm. role or what like that is how they would talk about it as the male role or as the active role versus the passive role um you know and there was criticism 
at the time of these practices, but there was also celebration of these practices at the time in poetry, in letters, in the way people write about this being, you know, a very normal relationship to have and a type of, um, like, social mm -hmm. aspects of this. And, I mean, I will say often this was you know, basically a way for both the boy in question and his family to expand right. and extend their social network because that was, you know, seen as a, like, legitimate way to create yeah. social ties with other men. Um, and I, uh, again, I am not trying to make excuses for any of this, but, you know, uh, as we talked about last week, you know, girls would be given away in marriage at, like, the age of 12. Um, if nothing else, for the most part, at least in the case of the boys, they normally had the ability to choose their, um, their partner, I guess, their, the older man. They would not, you know, they were, there, there was an expected, like, courtship rituals around this and, like, some amount of free choice, whereas girls were often just, I mean, for not, not often, like mm -hmm. the vast majority of the time were just handed over to adult men without any, you know, no regard for her mm -hmm. feelings on the matter whatsoever. Um, so I think that's something to keep in mind. And I mean, that there's a whole, um, there, there's a whole situation that comes out of this, um, and that is still a big topic of uh, heated debates today in terms of uh, Christianity and the New Testament. When you look at, you know, a lot of the Christian writings are being written in Greek, are referring to Greek culture and civilization, and, you know... It, passages that people use to condemn you know gay relationships were often most likely referring to this practice of older men sleeping with teenage boys basically um so that's you know this pederasty is essentially something that then leads to a lot of um, the commentary that we see in the early Middle Ages and then what carries forward even into the modern day as it gets sort of twisted into, you know, something to mean all relationships between people of the yeah. same sex, which uh, likely yeah, is exactly. not the case. <laughs> uh, like... <laughs> Anyway, so that's my uh... complicated <laughs> spiel of trying to explain how sexuality existed in the past. <laughs> yes, because I think again we, it's it's very complicated. It's uh, not. I mean, again, I think we also the the whole concept of like sexuality yeah. as an identity was not a thing, right? Like, yeah, it was sex was a thing you did, itself. not so, who you were. You know, it was seen as. Yeah, and it would be completely normal for someone who's, right, a teenage boy to um, 
be in this type of romantic relationship with an older man where he takes on, you know, the teenager takes on mm -hmm. the quote unquote passive role. Uh, then when that, that teenage boy grows up in his, you know, he's maybe around 30, he gets married to a teenage girl and has children with her. Um, and then simultaneously is sleeping with uh, now mm -hmm. takes on the active role in sleeping with teenage boys himself, uh, maybe also seeing prostitutes who would be mostly female, but some male as well, um, maybe would, I mean, almost certainly would sleep with the slaves in the household. So like, this is not a society where there's a lot of you know, there there isn't really the concept of homosexuality versus heterosexuality. It's just yeah. acts that you do in different contexts and different life stages. Yeah. Um, yeah. And obviously the people for whom this was most restrictive would have been married women because you were only yeah. allowed to have sex with your husband. Um, at least you know, hypothetically, uh, they don't seem to have really cared if, like, they, there's not a lot of anything written about, um, like, women yeah. having sex with each other, uh, mostly because I don't think the Greeks really yeah. cared, because as long as, you know, your wife wasn't getting pregnant by another man, like, eh, just... Like, that's not even real sex, is it? There's no penis involved. That doesn't count. Yeah, I so mean, that, that concept continued, like, well into the, it's like, 19th, early 20th century, where, like, that's why, like, so-called sapphic relationships weren't considered illegal where sodomy was. So. Yeah. Because it's like, they're not. Yeah. And I mean, to an extent, we still. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we still kind of see this today, right? Like, if you see. Like, there can be two women, yeah. like, kissing in, you know, paparazzi takes a picture and it'll still be labeled like, wow, gals being pals. But then it's like two men brush hands and they're like, oh, man, those guys are gay. Like, it's, <laughs> we have very different ideas yeah. Um, yeah. in terms of what counts. <laughs> so this has been around for a long time is what we're trying to say. This is not new. <laughs> Moving right along, now that we've gotten that out of the way, we can talk about ancient Rome, which was, you know, at least somewhat less, uh, they, they were somewhat less about kids having sex with adults. So that was yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, marginal. That's like a... You know, a, you know, a thin line to draw. These were also cultures where, like, the yeah, household a, art was like frescoes of people having sex. So, like, you know, <laughs> it's a weird time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it's a very weird time. And you know, I mean, again, even in the Roman period, we do see the ages for mm -hmm. marriage, like, realistically, like, the actual ages that most people get married go up, but girls could still be married as young as 12 right. and boys as young as 14. So, you know, it's, um, and, and there's still definitely, you know, not, it, it's maybe somewhat less 
it, it's maybe somewhat more between adults, yeah. but not not by <laughs> a lot yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, so in Rome, once again, uh, actually between birth and the age of seven, children would be considered in the infant stage, uh, infantia okay. in Latin. So again, they're in the care of women regardless of gender. And then once you turn eight... Until the onset of puberty, which would have been around 14 for boys in ancient Rome, children were understood to be at a point where they have a rational mind and are expected to take on responsibility around the house or, and also um, you know, fulfill their educational um, right. requirements, basically. So, again, that's not to say that people saw an eight-year-old as a full-fledged adult, but rather that, okay, you're eight years old, you are able to start taking on some domestic tasks, you're able to go to school, you're able to understand yeah. right from wrong, you know, in a way that a three-year-old <laughs> cannot. But also, while you could not get your kids married at that age, uh, the Romans knew that children by age eight could understand speech, which makes them eligible for betrothal. So, um, this eight-year-old definitely knows about talking. <laughs> yes, they can definitely understand words. Um, also, between eight and puberty, there was. A, similarly, there was this kind of gray area in the law where a child younger than eight could not be charged with a crime because they were too young to right. understand, like, right and wrong mm -hmm. or criminal intent. Um, and a, an adult, obviously, would be tried to the full extent of the law. But between about eight and 14, a, a boy could be held responsible for a crime if they could prove if if it could be proven that they understood their offense okay. so there there is this gray area of okay on we know that you kind of understand how the world works but you know uh, again as we see now where it's like we have juvenile versus adult yeah. uh court proceedings basically and it's the same idea here that okay you know we're going to have some amount of leeway for kids who who break the law, basically. Now, children's education was, again, normally practiced at home. So again, you're learning how to do all the tasks that you are going to need to learn mm -hmm. how to do on the farm or in the workshop that you will inherit from right. your father kind of thing. And again, there were a lot of toys that kids played with when they weren't busy helping their parents. We have, you know, rattles, different little dolls and figurines, clay, uh, or like wax to make to form little toys out of, and particularly for boys, toy weapons. Because again, you were supposed to learn how to be a good <laughs> soldier one day. Um, and again, if your family had the money to do so, you would be sent to the schools, the, you know, they would be, we, we would think of them today as a private school, but at that point they're thought of as public schools because anyone's allowed to go to them, if that makes sense. But you still have to pay for it versus private education, which was a tutor yeah. in your home. <laughs> um, 
And that's essentially what a Roman boy's life would look like until he came of age at about 14 and would, you know, then start leading a more adult life. Um, Middle Ages, we start seeing a much bigger shift uh, in terms of how children are viewed both under the law and also uh, how they are viewed in terms of sexual (laughs) relationships, which is uh, no, hard no. (laughs) Uh, You know, the, the, as, as the church, you know, they grow in power. They are very adamant about, you know, sex is only allowed between a married couple and the married couple has to be a man and a woman and both parties have to at least hypothetically consent to the marriage. Um, You know, that is not to say that every single person (laughs) was thrilled about the marriage, but you were no longer allowed to just straight up kidnap a woman Mm -hmm. and force her to be your bride. People still did it, but you know it, it was it like became a little passe. more um, complicated than like she's she's now in my possession. It had to be like a I will publicly shame you uh, kind of deal, and yep. so then she would be like, okay, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it was no longer this like. Here is, like, here's this sack of meat. That's for you now, <laughs> sir. And, like, girls just there, like, I'm yeah. 12 and I didn't want this. Um, also, again, obviously, uh, at this point, yeah, uh, pederasty stops really being a thing because, again, a uh, real crackdown on uh, having sex with children, basically. And, uh, so that's, you know, a, a, I mean, in general, a big, uh, any type of, like, like any form of homosexuality gets, you know, put on the bad list. But, you know, we see uh, that's, that's a whole other <laughs> episode that we're going to talk about. But that's one big change. Um also, again, we see that this the the idea of common law and how it applies right. to kids consistently keeps being that, you know, okay, until around the age of 12, 13, 14-ish, depending on region, we cannot try you as an adult. You do not have the capacity to understand, you know, the uh, the laws that you're breaking. And... You know, when we're talking about the lives of boys, there's obviously going to be a pretty sharp divide between a peasant boy versus a noble boy. So, for the most part, if you are a peasant boy, your duties are probably going to be, you know, early on, things like scaring birds from the field, maybe collecting eggs from the chickens or collecting fruit. Um, And as you get older, you would follow along with your father or, you know, whoever your male relative was if your father had died and you would be taught things like okay how do i sow a field how do i plow a field how do i harvest the wheat um you know 
and if your father was a skilled tradesman, then, you know, you would learn how to be a blacksmith, how to be a cartwright, how to making be a barrels. cooper, which is, you know, making barrels. Um, exactly. So you would, you know, learn these skills so that you would be able to take over, you know, basically the family business when your father got yeah. too old to keep it going anymore, basically. Um, whereas noble boys would have obviously lived in their castle or manor house with their parents, and often by the age of seven were sent away from their families mm -hmm. to go become a page in another uh, family's court. Uh, and then they would move up to a squire and then hopefully, you know, the end goal would be you'd become a knight. Um, and this whole idea was, um, it was actually called fostering. And the idea was that you would send your child away at that age, both so that they would receive a good education in another noble house and also to create right. family ties. Um, when, you know, you, you could create this relationship with another noble family and say, look, I trust you enough to take my son and educate him and raise him yeah. right, basically. Um, similarly, when we look at literacy, as we've spoken about many times, most people in the Middle Ages were illiterate, even the nobility, even the royalty, you know, Charlemagne yeah. could not write. Like, he could kind of scrawl out maybe his name by the end of his life. Um, because, again, we just take it for granted nowadays that, yeah, it's an easy skill to learn. Yeah. Which it's not. It takes years of practice and training. And that's just not something that's going on in, like, the 800s when you're more focused on, you know, bringing in the wheat and fighting off the marauding Yeah, it was bandits. a skilled, skilled trade um, writing. Like... Yes. Yeah, it was very much a skilled trade and arguably one of the big reasons that the church was able to become as influential as they did because they were basically the only people around who could, you know, yeah. uh, reliably read and write. And hey, turns out it's really good to have the people who can read and write yeah. in your corner so that you can, you know keep records, administer a kingdom, uh, get messages back and forth to, you know, your military commanders, or, you know, have someone to do yeah. math for taxes. So we do start seeing that, you know, as the Middle Ages go on, when you reach, you know, more like 1000-ish, you know, there's literacy mm -hmm. is becoming more and more normalized amongst the nobility. They are raising their children to be able to read and write, especially the boys, because they had to be able to understand the code of chivalry, um, because that was what made you a proper knight. You know, you had to learn the important lessons like, you know, it's dishonorable to kick a man when he's down or if he's lost his weapon you can't just stab him you have to wait for him to get his sword because you don't want to be dishonorable also you know a little little rules like please don't burn down peasant villages for fun uh please don't go to convents and rape nuns like uh, uh, truly you gotta... the bar was set so high for the night. a lot of the code man just like what is yes. even the point of being a knight now with all of these rules? Like, 
some nun's gonna come out here and tell it's, me it's what I can horrible. and cannot do when I am ravaging the convent. Like, it's. I'm honestly, it's if I was a knight, I would be afraid uh, to be yeah. around nuns anymore. <laughs> Or villages. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, if I can't just... Yeah. Those peasants might burn down exactly. the village and then blame me, you know? It's terrible. <laughs> so the more things change, the more they stay the same. Am I right? Bar's on the goddamn floor and we can't reach it. I'm just saying, those nuns asked me to spank uh, yeah. them. Uh. <laughs> oh. Yes, well, any knight of pure heart knows to avoid the castle anthrax, so that's really on you. anyone interested just go watch monty python and the holy grail i accurate a, depiction uh, a 100 accurate depiction of the middle ages it's perfect 10 out of 10 <laughs> however as the middle ages go on we do see more and more uh literacy being spread not only to the you know nobility and aristocracy but you might even you know have some basic literacy skills if you live in a town because there are grammar schools that are opening um, which didn't just teach grammar uh, obviously but it basically they were schools that would you know be the, the equivalent of what we would think of as maybe like yeah. elementary school today you know it was very much like you're gonna learn reading the three R's arithmetic <laughs> uh, exactly <laughs> um Whereas, you know, obviously, as the Middle Ages go on, if you are a fancy, noble, aristocratic type of boy, you're going to learn things like Greek and Latin. And, you know, you're going to learn trigonometry and geometry and uh, probably at least some astronomy because you got to know how those planets yeah. work. It's very important and to know... I mean, genuinely, it's very important to understand, like, you know, the night sky at this time when that's what you're using and to also your medicine. Um, <laughs> mm hmm. Genuinely, you don't want to be letting blood yeah. at the wrong phase of the moon. So, multiple reasons that that was important. There were also chantry schools, which were basically similar to grammar schools, but run by priests, and they would also teach children to read and write there. So, you know, a, a wide variety of schools. There were also cathedral schools, which, again, run by the church, teach kids how to read and write, mostly boys, maybe a few girls. I, I cannot say for certain <laughs> that no girl was ever educated in one of these, but mostly boys. Um, and... Again, something we haven't talked about very much is the, like, physical 
discipline that uh, would be uh, used on children regularly and particularly yeah. towards boys because, you know, that's not to say that girls didn't get, you know, spanked or hit or anything like that, but typically boys were treated somewhat more roughly. Um, and you'd often get more of it because you're getting it at home and at school. Um, which is, again, not to defend these practices, just that yeah. is how it was. And that's what people did. Um, basically, the idea was that, you know, especially if you were going to grow up to be a knight, or if you were, I mean, just in general, going to grow up and be in a situation where, yeah, you're called on to be a foot soldier or you're call called on to be a longbowman. Uh, you know, you need to be able to basically be used to pain and be able to, you know, take the... <laughs> yeah, like, basically, you had to be used to pain because your adult life would probably involve pain and yeah. violence as well. So, you know, it... I am not defending this. Please don't hit your kids. But, you know... I'm also not going to sit here and be like, everyone in the Middle Ages was irredeemably evil when in a lot of ways they're like, well, the world is full of violence and terror. I at least want my kid to, like, grow up to be able to, like, withstand the yep. brutal world in which we live. That is not to say, though, that all of medieval boyhood was horrible and painful uh in many ways it would have been pretty fun they had again lots of games with balls they would play marbles they would play all kinds of different games with like sticks and rattles mm -hmm. and spinning tops and spinning the hoops nine pin bowling was a very popular medieval game and if you were a boy who could whose family could afford it you would perhaps even get a hobby Ooh, horse wow. or rocking horse <laughs> yeah and also there were lots of games like that would be still similar similar to what kids would play today and things that we'd be familiar with like hide and seek playing on a seesaw swimming playing tag <laughs> walking on stilts is like surprisingly popular they're just like wow this is great give that boy some stilts let him walk around the fields and those like an unusual number of friends as a kid that had stilts. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I did not spend a lot I of time on them like because I'm not the... like coordinated enough for it, but Yeah, I feel like <laughs> the 90s and like early 2000s were very excited about like things that make yeah. kids go high. Like stilts, moon shoes, moon shoes. <laughs> Uh, moon shoes. Also, just like yeah. trampolines in general, all the rage. Trampolines without a net. Oh, oh that, yeah. That, was, that I did not see nets on trampolines you until I was net. like nobody functionally an adult. Yeah, same. Yeah, I was like I don't know. Just let them out there, have fun. Like Kid, you put high. it on the grass. 
So that if they bounced off, it was into the soft grass. Yeah. <laughs> Listen. I only I, know a few people got, who had to know. have their teeth replaced. From falling face first onto the edge of the trampoline. Yeah. 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 I mean, again, I, I think this is, like, we laugh about this, but I feel like it's just another example of, like, how, yeah, the idea of what's safe yeah. changes over time and the idea of, like, what kids can handle. Well, also, really have you seen all those studies time. where they're, like, the super safe playgrounds are also, are actually, like, bad for child development because children need to test boundaries to figure yes. out what is actually dangerous and if they're just surrounded by super safe padded uh, materials that like they will think that they're like essentially they're not getting any stimulus from the outside world that's going to train their brain to know what is dangerous and so they're just like not going yeah. to be able to safely move through the world later in life <laughs> And I think that's, I mean, yeah, and I think you bring up a really good point about, like, child development and how we talk about training and teaching kids for yeah. the adult world. Because, you know, I, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, like, we do have, we have much more, we, we have more built in, like, padding yeah. and safety nets just in general in our modern society, right? Like, and you get a lot of the, like... You know, people talk about like, well, rather than punishing your child, just let them face the natural consequences. And it's like, okay, that's cool now, because if your kid gets sick or gets injured yeah. or whatever, you can like, there's decent medicine and decent. Yeah, like if your kid falls that. off something and breaks his Not arm, so like you're going to get the, the past. bone set properly and they'll still be able to use their hand. Yeah, or like even things like, you know, if your kid goes into, you know, a a like place, like say the, you know, a garage, a workshop, whatever, and they're not wearing proper shoes and the nail goes into their foot, they yeah. can, like they've had a tetanus yeah. shot, they're going to be fine. In the past, yeah. you just die from tetanus. Um, so this is, uh, again, I am not trying to say like, yeah, the, hitting kids was a great plan, but I do think we also tend to forget that, like, in a lot of ways, there was yeah. a lot less room for error. Like, if your kid did not obey you the first time you told them something, yeah. they could die. If they went into the woods when you said, don't go in the woods, they could die. If they went and played by the river when you said, don't play by the river they could fall in and die because there's no there, there's not really safety nets yeah. in the way that we would think of them today um and you know nowadays we have more safety nets and like we know better so we can do better but i i think we do forget how 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 dangerous yeah. childhood was until yeah. honestly very recently yeah um, yeah, and I mean, it stays quite similar through the early modern period, you know, as we talked about last week, there's some ideas, some changes in ideas about 
how to educate kids. And, you know, there is some pushback of people saying, you know, maybe we should like focus on, you know, seeing children as like, we can, you know, have a bit more like relational Mm -hmm. teaching with them, uh, being a bit more like, okay, it's our job to kind of fill their empty minds with the correct ideas and the correct way to do things. Um, but, you know, we don't necessarily have to be quite so, like, yeah. authoritarian about it. But, again, this remains kind of a fringe idea for quite a while. Um, and I think that takes, I mean, that just takes us right through to the early modern period. There's not huge changes in terms of what it's like to be a boy. You've probably got similar uh, yeah. toys and games, similar amusements. And that takes us right up to the uh, revolutionary period in America, where Marco's going to take it away. Yeah, so, I mean, building off of this idea of, like, talking about what, um, how people thought about educating and disciplining boys and children in general, a lot of this comes down to, like, how people conceived of the idea of boyhood, um, which uh, in America is kind of a difficult thing to pin down, um, especially because there's like this big transition in the idea of childhood in the 19th century, especially there's like a really significant change after the Civil War with the the influence that the Civil War played on, the American Civil War played on uh, just sort of all aspects of life. Um, But so what we have is like from the early Republic Um, in the U.S. to the progressive era, Americans and Brits uh, constructed the ideas of boys into, like, this, these, like, large disciplines, right? Um, And they were, the the concept of the boy was used to understand morality, pedagogy, imperialism, nationalism, and, like, the general human psyche. Like, you could use this, the boy as metaphor for kind of like anything really and that like really affected the way that people interacted with like real life boys and about our like ideas about boys and manhood today um and so like i think you know when we talk about like what what does actual day-to-day boyhood look like in this period i mean we have a sort of general idea from literature right we can look at you know i think everybody has a sort of passing knowledge of huck finn tom sawyer uh you know the boys in anne of green gables um dickens characters if you want to go over to england like that sort of what we're looking at is like the i mean obviously there weren't like a whole lot of boys running away with an enslaved man on the Mississippi, but like the, the way that Huck and Tom are sort of treated by the adults around them, the freedom of movement that they have. Um, if we look at Gilbert and what's the French boy's name, whatever. Anyway, but like, as we look at like Gilbert in the school and stuff like that, um, you know, we can sort of get a frame of reference for like, what did boyhood on a day to day, you know, what did that look like in North America? And then, you know, there's a bunch of other characters in uh, Great Britain. Um, 
But there were also in this period a lot of people who were so-called like domestic writers who were writing either novels or literal like manuals for how to raise boys and girls, uh, like what, how to raise them, how to like discipline them, how to teach them morality, how to teach them anything, you know? So, um, and like that's sort of how we get this like weird metaphor of boyhood. Um, and so like as I as I talk about these writers and thinkers, I like I just want us to remember that like these are real living boys that they were working with and that this has shaped the way yeah. that we think about like boys' development today and just like sort of how much pressure that is to put on a child. Um like essentially the hopes of entire nations and imperial projects on like 10 year olds where it's like you are going to represent and like i have um at least one literal example of this where it's like an actual physical boy um so yeah um so anyway we can uh -hmm. get started talking about like how these scholars uh were thinking about the basic category of boy because it differs slightly from the concept that we put forth earlier um so like the abstract conception of what a boy could be. We're looking at male children from around six or seven to possibly late teens or even 21. Um, over the course of this period, this line sort of moves around quite a bit, um, especially after the Civil War and moving into the Progressive Era. But we have evidence of children as young as six starting the process of learning their trade, um, which in the way that they're characterized uh, especially in these like uh, disciplinary texts, um, really sort of implies that children should be able to, on some level, earn their living as young as six or seven. Um, and this concept really starts to be debated after the Civil War of like how long children should be seen as full dependents. Um, and you have with the Progressive Era and the uh, around the turn of the 20th century, um, the full criminalization of child labor anyway um but other writers sort of conceive of boyhood as a more flexible state of being um so these boyhood these these writers really thought of boyhood as quote a disciplinary space in which male children were a special kind of problem um, but some boys, if managed properly, could quickly emerge from this liminal space into, quote, young men or young gentlemen, which essentially that sort of boy nature had already been crushed out of them, and they were now, like, full, full members of society, just small. Um, and there was like a lot of worry about how to do this, how to raise a boy and how to deal with this like boy nature. Um, so I have another quote um, of how these write about how these writers like thought about boys, right? So quote, those who were not well managed, those boys who were not young, well managed when young presented numerous problems when older, becoming neglectful fathers, abusive husbands, dishonest merchants, or even slave owners. Um, To avoid such outcomes, domestic theorists wrote at length about numerous forms of discipline and how each was suited to shape a boy's nature. Some strongly endorsed corporal punishment, end quote. So a lot of these writers are specifically coming out of New England. Um, So like we have like Louisa May Alcott and um, her father, uh, who were adamant uh, abolitionists. 
So you like becoming a slave owner is sort of like falling into that like sort of uncivilized yeah. nature state where like you don't don't want to have that kind of like weird moral issue, right? Um, but so this idea, yeah. So this idea about the the nature of boys is like sort of complex and weirdly influenced by imperialism. Um, and the basis of these ideas emerged from the literature that's coming out this time and a few disparate kinds of tales that we tell in the West about <laughs> boys. So the first, which I'm going to talk about actually second, uh, is called boyology, uh, <laughs> which, which is, um, a, 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 this like series of writings, mm -hmm. um, that are both descriptive and prescriptive. Uh, so describing boys and also prescribing a way to deal with them. Um, these writings on boyhood that emerge sort of across the genres. And then there's another type of story, which is about the feral boy, um, which comes from mythology and folklore um, and talks about sort of the wildness of boys. Um, so the first of these, which comes from myth, is uh, the partially formed wild boy or the nature boy, the boy raised by wolves or panthers or bears in the wilderness without mm -hmm. the guide of society or Christianity. Um, and this concept existed in myth for thousands of years. You know, we can look at uh, Romulus and Remus, and all of those people. Mm -hmm. uh, but like it really took off. Yes in written literature with the in enlightenment europe as like an actual problem that existed in the world <laughs> um slash a lens through which we could sort of see all of humanity and there was a lot of extensive writing in the 18th century on these uh so-called feral children um mm -hmm. so the the actual term of feral children feral man or in Latin, homo ferris, came from um, Carolus Linnaeus, or Carl von Linné, um, who devised this theory of the homo ferris um, in his 10th edition of Systema Naturae in 1758. Um, and he saw this, like, this kind of person as a sort of human subspecies um, that like moved around on all fours and was mute and like was not just a figure of mythology and folklore but was actually like a real thing um and there's a um a list of about like six or seven documented feral children who like you know, had gotten lost or their family had abandoned them, you know, in the same way that we find like a severely abused, abandoned children now. Um, but they were like, became like this real sort of crisis in uh, the 18th century. Um, yeah. Because, right, we understand now what's happening on a neurological level to children who are removed from social context from, sorry, we understand, we understand what's happening on a neurological level to children removed from social contact now. But the Enlightenment really, right, was a time of, like, conceptual struggle. Like, uh, if we're going to understand humanity through a lens of reason and not just as, like, we are the creatures retained by God to lead the world, like, how, 
How are we different from animals? Like, what characteristics specifically did God give us to make us different from animals? Like, what are those things that differentiate us from the beings who don't have souls and aren't going to heaven? And how does spreading a, quote, like, civilized way of life to the far reaches of the world better all of humanity? Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's like this, this crisis that they're having. And yeah. so understanding this, like, stunted kind of person who's been in the wild becomes really important to them. Um, so we see, like, the, the traditional wild man was childless, um, and he was, quote, increasingly treated as a case of arrested development. Uh, which might also, which might be why Homo Ferris yeah. so often and so ambivalently took the form of a boy. Um, and we can sort of see this in spite of, right, the, the stories of the noble savage or of romanticism and like man's connection to the great beauty of the earth. Like yeah. a person who grows up without society and specifically without Christianity is a stunted child man, a boy man. So from this idea of like the uncontrolled feral boy and the civilizing that must happen to make him into a quote real man or quote gentleman, uh, we get all sorts of like weirdness about imperialism and novels of lost boys and their representation for the future of colonized nations. The most famous of these obviously in like English literature is Kipling with the Jungle Book, uh, where you have Mowgli, um, you know, uh, Indian boy raised by wolves who emerges from the jungle and is introduced to a colonized Indian society and becomes like this like functioning person. Um, and Mowgli represents sort of all of India and his step into society and community is British influence on the subcontinent, right? Um, and there's another big character that I want to talk about, which is Natty Bumpo from Last of Mohicans. Uh, I'm going to talk about him more sort of after I explain boyology, because he falls into this weird place of the American man in the 18th yes. and early 19th century that's a little bit different from yeah. this very British idea of colonialism. But we're going to get into that. So on the other side of the coin of the Lost Boy, right? We have, uh, boyology, which I don't even know how to describe, so I'm just going to read you a quote from a book about it. Uh, quote, an allusion to biology, boyology, first designated the American pseudoscience of boy analysis, which flourished in the, which flourished in the early 20th century. Um, the term is borrowed from Henry William Gibson, the YMCA leader and author of the handbook Boyology, or Boy Analysis, which was designed for readers who are short in psycho psychology, physiology, pedagogy, and sociology, but are long in common sense and heartology. Boyology serves in a handbook for, quote, boy workers as a literature review of handbooks that precede it, beginning with William Bryan Forbush's influential The Boy Problem. Um, and this whole concept is also heavily influenced by 19th century domestic writers, like I mentioned before. Anyway, end of quote. Um, yeah. So, like, it's influenced by Louisa May Alcott and uh, 
what's her name Sigourney and a few other like pedagogical writers um yeah it's a it's like a whole thing um I just, I like really can't get past like boyology. But if you look at this quote that comes from uh, Henry William Gibson, uh, the people for readers who are short in psychology, physiology, pedagogy, sociology, but are who are long in common sense and quote heartology, it really, this whole concept really reads as those like the modern, like contemporary. Uh, conservative writers who are like, I'm going to teach you how to raise your kid without all of this psycho babble, which is just like not super helpful. Um, so yeah, not really interested in actual science of child development, more in the concept of a morally good boy. Um, and like with these domestic theorists, the people who are like really really obsessed with creating a good home and that good home being a reflection of like the nation and a good nation emerging from like a collection of all of these good homes and like this weird stacking thing um like children were really at the center of that kind of theory and within children most importantly right we have boys because boys are going to grow up into men and while girls were important because they're going to grow into women and needed to be like all sensitive and like the angels of the hearth or whatever it's boys are the ones who are going to be running said nation um so so yeah this like boy work that we talk about with like the ymca and these other organizations uh was really to supplement what people were supposed to be doing in the home church and school so this is where you get like boys should be in organized activities and not allowed to run off on their own because they are evil in their souls (laughs) um i think we had sort of like moved at this point in time people had really sort of moved past that literal language of like puritans who thought sort of universally that children in general were kind of like evil uh toward like specifically boy nature is a little too wild and has to be constantly curbed so we have these texts focused on curbing the frightening nature of young boys into young men yeah um and a, a major focus of these texts was on discipline often it was corporal punishment because they believed that boys were particularly physical, whereas girls were emotional. You could, like, talk to them and relate to them and, like, move them through caring for others into an appropriate behavior. Boys were entirely physical, and you needed to beat them, essentially, into their brains so that they became men of reason. Um, But there were some other, like, domestic theorists um who really wrote a lot about shame and shaming boys into proper behavior and the little women slash little men series is really about this and laurie in specific does a lot of that heavy lifting of like instead of following his passions and just like running around uh the woods with joe and like wanting to be like you know these like romantics or whatever he like yeah where he like plays the piano yeah follows all of the things that he wants to do and like wants to be with 
Joe, who's like really passionate about, you know, being a writer and all this stuff, he he becomes a man when he decides to like get a lucrative job and like go to university and he ends up uh in Europe uh yeah. you know and getting married and, and then like marry well and Amy. specifically marry Amy, Amy yeah. who is much more of the you know proper yeah woman of the time yeah so like as compared she wants to paint and stuff but like she has that whole speech about how like getting married is an economic uh well in in the movie movie, yeah yeah yeah, she does yeah but like it's to to be yeah yeah so in the movie in the newest movie she has this speech but like also it's in the book meg and amy sort of represent what marriage means for a woman of the period, right? Amy can't just flit around Europe with her great aunt forever because she doesn't have the financial prospects that her widowed aunt has. Um, And Meg has to get married because, like, she's the oldest and she needs to, like, provide stability for all of these families. Anyway, the, the, the... It's not overtly... Like, in the book, it's not as overt as that speech yeah uh because it has a bunch of pages (laughs) where it can like lay this out for you um it it is very yeah it the the subtext is yeah the movie really takes the subtext and puts it in the text (laughs) so if you if you want exactly condensed little women um (laughs) the speech the speech in in the new movie don't look at any of the costumes and just look at the. Sp- just watch that one. Well, scene no, there's so there's two scenes. The two scenes. Honestly. The one where Laurie throws a right. fit at Joe when she refuses to marry him for like the second time, and then the speech that Amy gives to Laurie, and maybe even if you want to throw in the other speech that Meg also gives to Joe uh, about why she wants to get married. Um, None yeah. of those speeches are in the books. It's yeah, all it's subtext that they've speed run. Yeah, but anyway, it's it, it's Louisa May Alcott is a, is a huge influence on uh, yeah. culture in America. She's widely read in this period. Um, there's a whole series of the books. They just keep making movies about little women. There have been little men movies as well, but it's a whole series of books really about like what it means to be a growing person in america yeah so now that we've spent like 20 minutes talking about little women listen it deserves it (laughs) not to undermine the importance of little women but like uh by the time we get to like the the beginning of the 20th century uh we see these two concepts of, on boyhood, right? The like feral wild boy and these like boyology boys sort of merge into one concept. And um, we see that sort of like the feral child is in all of us and we have to harness its innocence and unconventional creativity within a so-called civilized society to thus function at our best for imperial capitalism. Um, and the sort of like most obvious way that this is represented in like actual raising of boys Mm -hmm. is in scouting which oh man 
So I know that, like, the history of the Girl Scouts is not, like, great. Margaret Sanger has some, like, weird issues. But the the Boy Scouts, the Boy Scouts have, like, a whole lot of issues. Uh, So we can also say that, like, this is a period when, when scouting is sort of introduced, when, like, these British and American understandings of boyhoods really, like, merge into one. So, like, at this time, the sort of feral wild child idea is really very British, and this boyology, sort of very Puritan-influenced idea, is very American. And scouting kind of takes them and smushes them together, and that's when we get this more, like, cohesive, transatlantic uh, idea of what a boy is. Um, and so we have s- scouting, which was sort of created in 1908 by Lord Robert Baden-Powell, who's a British military officer that led an invasion against the Boers in North Africa. Um, it, it, it creates an institution through which you can, you can integrate a wild connection with nature into this very systematized, like, boyology way of addressing and moralizing boyhood. Um, so, the, the way that, like, scouting sort of, like, grows up, right, it, it, brings this like feral tale to back to North America and transforms this like wild boy into a respectable citizen. So you can go out into the woods and you can be together with all the guys and you can like sit around a campfire and you can like learn to tie all of these knots and you can like, you know, run around building forts out of sticks or whatever, but you're going to do it in a way that is very prescribed, that is like civilized where you're gonna wear your little pith helmet and get like badges so you're gonna get like rewarded for certain behaviors for learning certain things so it's a it's a way to use this like which should be sort of traditional natural knowledge right how to survive on the land into a weird sort of capitalist concept uh and i think this is where I want to go back to Natty right. Bumpo. Right. So Natty Bumpo is one of the earliest characters that becomes a sort of archetype for 19th century American manhood. Um, of the, and he's like the, the representation of the kind of man that can tame the West. Right. So the, the uh, American man is going to have to be at heart an indigenous person, but on the outside and in a lot of his most important characteristics, he's going to be a civilized, like, Euro-Western man. (sighs) Which is just exhausting. (laughs) Um, And, like, is this... Natty Bumpo is also this representation of somebody who's going to replace indigenous people, right? We can take the, like, the, the... the noble aspects of an indigenous person, right? Take the the noble savage characteristics, which again are not a representation of indigenous people, uh, but you can take those ideas and and combine them with like the like you know civilization and respectability of 
the brutish gentleman and become this like well-rounded man who can really like he can be the homesteader and the like teddy roosevelt right it's just you can be both the gentleman of the euro western standards but also you're this like rugged individual who can survive on your own yeah. with absolutely no help except for your wife and your children and all the other people in your community but let's not talk about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so like this is this is an idea that's particular to americans specifically uh but i do think does have a lot of influence oh, on yeah. canada as well um and so like in this we sort of see that in a lot of ways the the north american man especially like the the english speaking north american man is built on this concept of the yes. tamed wolf boy or in natty bumpo's case right the civilized yeah, indigenous the man good individual um, the you know yeah like you're able to survive in this like quote-unquote wilderness but you're also very useful to industrial capitalism (laughs) yeah exactly and so like as as we move through the the like 20th century uh we see how like writing about the boy like a a boy becomes a sign of like American exceptionalism, um, individualism, and like sort of if we look at like Thoreau and Emerson, like those kinds of ideas of self reliance come to be part of like the idea of the boy. And of course, when we talk about Thoreau and Emerson, their friends were financially supporting them, or their families yes. were financially supporting them. Thoreau could not afford himself that cabin on Walden Pond. His dad paid for it with pencil money. Anyway, uh, but like the the boy in particular, like serves as like the idea of like our country's innocent past of the the early na- nation. He's adventurous and rough around the edges, but always like morally true. You know, Huck wants to set. Jim, fucking Chris. Huck wants to set Jim free. I can't remember any names today. Huck wants to set Jim free and, uh, you know, like, Tom ends up, like, you know, I mean, he does a lot of screwed up stuff, but apologizes for it. Uh, we have all of these, like, figures that become sort of a, a shorthand for what America is, and it's, one gross <laughs> in like a poor boys but also means that like boys have to conceive of themselves within this system of capitalist patriarchy um that like these these boys are supposed to be an expression of sort of universal ideas of what boyhood and manhood is but are very specifically american masculinity which means very specifically a, a, like capitalist imperial masculinity and there's no sort of way out of that um and i think that that's created a lot of our ideas about modern contemporary masculinity um and so that's very much the like the tamed wolf boy but the like the the og wolf boy or wild boy is definitely still alive in our consciousness and if we look at that as like sort of a case study we can look at the way that 
all of these sort of immigrant, poor, indigenous groups or even like um, disabled peoples come to be likened to children who may eventually be able to be like tamed and become civilized full humans but like not yet uh, not if they stay with their like traditional ideas or or need any sort of accommodations or anything like that um there's also this other like weird way that the the wild boy sort of exists in uh modern storytelling which is uh in the uh, the man who has to reconnect with his inner wild child in order to be like a yeah. full person again. Um, the, my favorite example that was used in the text that I was looking at was, uh, oh, <laughs> was <God>. Hook, yeah. <laughs> which the movie with, um, with Robin Williams about Peter Pan, but Peter Pan's like years old, grown yeah. up and he has to go back. <laughs> He has to go back to Neverland and, like, learn how to be a boy again. Um, the, the book that I was reading where they talk about it, um, considered a family film in which adult Peter reclaims his inner pan to achieve full yuppiehood. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and... Yeah, and essentially, like, right, so the book says, quote, wildness was no longer a liability, but an asset, and the dissemination of ego, psychology, and humanistic psychology further held at bay more disturbing visions of the beast within. Natty Bumpo lives, right? It's, it's a, it's a way of, like, you have to use your, like, sort of wild boyish nature in a very specific way. Uh, and in a way that will help you be this vision of like capitalist family man. Uh, it's gross and I hate it. I hate all of it. And it just really points to the ways that we really, really restrict. We restrict men from the time that they are children into what they are allowed to be, what they are allowed to express. Um, and in the same way that like we talked about like how much girls had little control over what they could do. Uh, what they could learn, what their roles were going to be, how they were trained to be wives and mothers, um, and how we're going to talk about later women sort of being, you know, oppressed and repressed. Like, this this is the other side of that coin, where boys are allowed two options. You can be a literal feral animal, or you can be this, like, upstanding yes. gentleman. And the scope of emotions that you can have, the the jobs that you can have, the roles that you can have within your family are really, really restricted because of it. Um, and the pressure of representing your entire nation and civilizing projects and the way that like all of this is framed around yeah. being very white is also disturbing because there's no room in either of these boyhoods for black boys or indigenous boys or you know boys from literally any other continent other than like originating in europe and that's deeply troubling and i think also leads to what we're, we see now with the adultification of yes. boys of color where boys of color are held to a much higher standard than yeah. white boys um and I think it comes from these conceptions that we have about like what a boy is allowed to be and how that affects how they become a man. Um, 
yeah anyway it's gross and i hate it all i hate all of it we should stop doing this and just let boys be children yeah and men should be able to cry if i can cry in public then men should be able to cry in public yeah, and I think just, yes. Is where I'm at with this. And, I, I mean, I think taking that a little, um, you know, kind of going with that, it is like a, and, and I think that, you know, obviously this is a slow transition, but I think we are seeing at least some more, um, like, allowability of having a little bit more of a, emotional and inner life for men um mm-hmm. particularly with regards to uh like family life you know fathers today across the board spend more time with their children than fathers did in say the 1960s or 70s right like we're seeing a slow kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. like oh okay like i'm not just growing up from a wild boy into like the stern serious breadwinner of the family who like has no emotions and you know is just there as like the disciplinarian of like well just just wait till your father gets home and like yeah. you know i think it's been a like, <laughs> I-, I think we're trying to get there yeah yeah no totally i uh i think that all of those movements toward allowing men to be more than these things and allowing boys to be more than these things are great Uh, again with like our purpose for the podcast of like looking at what things were in the past and how that influences where we are now like this is just a way to think to look critically at like what our conceptions of boyhood are where they came from and why we should probably work harder to change them (laughs) Thanks for listening to us yet again. Uh, We're back next week talking about the lives of indigenous children with a special guest. So make sure to give a... With that being said, uh, please follow us on the social medias, leave us a review, have a great week, and stay safe and healthy. Bye-bye! Thank you so much for listening to the Baba Yaga Project. If you want more awesome Baba Yaga content, uh, you should join our Patreon, where you can get access to bonus content, exclusive merch, um, our super special Discord, and extra book club content. Um, We want to specifically shout out these Patreon members. Yes, special thank you to John, the Age of Darkness podcast, Christian. Jessica, Jack CW, Whispering Sage, Annie, Adriana, and Katerina. We are delighted to have you on board, and thanks again for helping make the Baba Yaga Project possible. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Baba Yaga Project, and as always, thank you to all our patrons for making this project possible. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and on our website for the most up-to-date happenings. Also, please consider supporting us on Patreon. It really helps us continue the project and expand in some really exciting ways. There's also Patreon-exclusive merch and content. And we'll see you next week!